0: Okay, we are in our third part of our series on the seven churches of Revelation, and the theme of this message is about an immoral church, an immoral church. We're in Revelation chapter 2, starting at verse 12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Let me give you a summary of what I think is going on here in this letter to this church at Pergamum. church in Pergamum is doing well, they have stood firm in testing times, yet they are compromising with immorality, and this is, of course, so relevant to our context. There are today so many faithful Christians who are sexually compromised, that's just, we know what that is, we know that's just so common. And the trouble is that this puts us in direct conflict with Christ, which is not a good place to be. But there's great reward for walking in a different way, and that means that we need to see things differently. It means that we need to be faithful witnesses like Antipas, not worldly like Balak and the Nicolaitans. And uh, somebody said, and this is such a powerful phrase and one we could do with holding on to as we work through this part of the letters to the churches. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. Worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And we are certainly living in a world where righteousness looks strange and sin looks normal. Okay, let's think about this church and the place where she was. First of all, the city then, the city of Pergamum. This is the most northerly of the seven churches which Jesus addresses and was at the top of a 1,000 foot high hill. And it was a very cultured place. There was a library in Pergamum which contained 2,000 volumes, which is a huge number in the context of the time of the ancient world. And uh, it said that parchment was invented in Pergamum, replacing papyrus as the um, media upon which books, scrolls were written. It was also a very religious place. It was a centre of worship of the gods Zeus and Athene and Dionysus and Asclepius. And Asclepius was the god of healing, and there was a cult of healing in Pergamum. And one of the interesting things about Asclepius is that he is normally portrayed with a serpent. It's a sign of the healer, Asclepius. And the serpent, or the dragon the two terms are interchangeably used in the Bible and here in Revelation there's something powerful about that which we need to see, that at the very center of Pergamum's kind of cultural life was worship of Sclepius, whose symbol was the serpent, the dragon. And here in Revelation, we're told what the dragon is like and what he does. That the dragon, the serpent, gives political power the beast. It uh, gives the beast power to persecute God's people. As we, as we work through Revelation, we have this, what can be confusing and alarming for people, this talk about the dragon and about the beast. This is what is being described. The serpent, the dragon, represents, yes, demonic power, Satan, and the beast represents political power, which is authorised uh, by the dragon and given power to persecute the people of God. And Pergamon was a hostile place For Christians, it had, in a sense, been given over to the beast, given over to the worship of the beast and to his authority. Pergamon was the first city in Asia to build a temple to the divine Augustus, Roman emperor. In 29 BC, they constructed a temple for the worship of the emperor, and Pergamon became known as the temple warden city, had its reputation for guarding the shrines of these gods and the shrine to this god of the emperor. And Jesus says to this church, this is where Satan's throne is. Reputation and culture, temple warden, Jesus says, no, Satan's throne. That's that's a city, a hostile place for Christians. And so the next thing to see is the conflict that existed between this city and the Christians. Jesus introduces himself to this church as the one who has the sharp double-edged sword Um, at the beginning of Revelation Revelation 1 verse 16 we're we're told Jesus is pictured as one with a sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth and Jesus repeats that here and what the sword is about what it does is to represent authority the empire the Roman Empire bore the sword of authority but Christ's sword is sharper (laughs) Jesus has a greater authority than the authority of Rome. But what is happening, inevitably, is that there is conflict between the authority of Rome and the authority of Christ. And really this comes down to a question of who are you going to follow, who are you going to obey? Are you going to be worldly, following the authority of the world, actually following the authority of the beast, or are you going to be a witness, remaining faithful to Jesus Christ and trusting him in his authority who are you going to follow who are you going to obey and throughout the book of Revelation we have this picture this imagery of beastly power of beastly empire it's true in Rome we can think of it see it anywhere where there has been a a domineering empire which has destroyed human life Stalin's Russia the beast Mao's China the beast There's an earthly power at work, but there's also a spiritual reality at work behind the earthly one. It's not just that you have the Roman Empire, it's not just that you have Stalin, it's not just that you have Mao, but there is beastly spiritual reality at work behind their authority. And so Pergamum is a city which in every sense opposes God. Pergamum is so thoroughly sold to worldliness the authority of the beast, that Christ says it is where Satan has his throne. And yet the church has stood firm in the face of all this. Jesus talks about Antipas, the faithful witness. We don't know anything about Antipas, who he was, but clearly the church that Jesus addresses did. And we assume that he was a martyr, someone who gave his life for his faith in Christ. Jesus describes him as a faithful witness. Interestingly, back in verse 5 of chapter 1 of Revelation, Jesus himself is described as the faithful witness. And so Jesus, the faithful witness, describes Antipas the martyr as a faithful witness. What we see here is the close association between Christ and his people, what we see is Jesus commending Antipas and commending this church is, it's a well done. You have chosen to follow me. You haven't followed the way of the beast. You have chosen to be faithful to me. You've chosen to be witnesses rather than to be worldly, even in the case of Antipas, when that's cost a life. It's a well done. But there's also a compromise. We see this city. we see the conflict in the city. And then we see the compromise for this church in this city. And Jesus compares this church, compares what they're experiencing, to what happened to the nation of Israel uh, under the influence of a man called Balaam. And this is a story which is told in Numbers 22 through 24. And and as we see throughout Revelation, it's just another another, uh, demonstration that to understand what's being said in Revelation, we really need to have an understanding of, Old Testament scripture. Uh, Balaam was a a prophet, or we we might think of a kind of a shaman type figure, who was summoned by Balak, who was king of Moab and Midian, summoned by Balak to curse the Israelites. And um, if you've read the story, which I'm sure all of you have, that uh, Balaam is unable to curse the people of Israel. He he, he gets up on a, a mountaintop, looks across the people of Israel. He's meant to curse, but instead a blessing comes out of his mouth and Balak is furious and says I've told you to curse and instead you're blessing let's, let's try it again and so they try it again and again Balaam opens his mouth and rather than cursing only blessing can come out and this, this happens a number of times and in the end it just comes, becomes farcical you think how long is it going to take Balak to work out that Balaam really cannot curse the Israelites he can only bless them and then in Numbers 24 Balaam goes home But then we read in Numbers 31, later on, that before he leaves Balak, he advises a trap. He says to Balak, I cannot curse these people, I can only bless them. But there is a way that you can get in, undermine them. There's a way you can get some victory over them. And that is if you can trap them into immorality. And so in Numbers 25, verse 1, we read this. The men began to indulge in sexual immorality with Moabite women who invited them to sacrifice to the sacrifice of their gods. And then Jesus says there's the same compromise happening now in Pergamum, the compromise incited by Balaam. and He also references the Nicolaitans who we saw when we were looking at the church in Ephesus. The Nicolaitans, this, this sect who... We're saying to the church, you can can have it both. You can follow Jesus and you can still worship the idols and indulge in immorality. You can do it both. And, And Jesus is saying, no, look, you're in danger from the Balaamites, from the Nicolaitans, just as the people of Israel were. And it's not the whole church who are falling into this pit. Jesus says that it's some, some are following the way of Balaam. Some are following the way of the Nicolaitans. But the whole church is endangered by what some are doing. They are in danger just as Israel had been back in the days of Balak and Balaam. And Jesus says a scary thing. He says that he himself will fight them if they don't repent. And that's a scary place in which to be. In Numbers 25, we read that most of the Israelite community are repentant when they're confronted with their sin of immorality but there's one man who is flagrantly unrepentant and in front of the whole community he brings a a foreign woman into the camp and he takes her into his tent and takes her to bed and then we read that Phineas the priest takes a skewer goes into the tent after the man and skewers the man and his lover kills them both and that's one of these Biblical stories, which to us is profoundly shocking. What is that about? That this priest takes a spear and skewers the man and the woman, pins them together to the bed. It's a shocking story to us. But Jesus says that in effect that is what he will do to the church at Pergamon if they do not repent of their immorality. And that makes us ask the question, why is sexual immorality such a big deal to the Lord? Why did the Lord commend Phineas for spearing to death that man and that woman back in the days of Israel? Why is Jesus saying that he will do the same thing to those in Pergamum who don't repent of their immorality? Why is is sexual immorality such a big deal to the Lord? And this applies to all of us, those of us... Those of us at this event who know and love the Lord. We need to think about this. Why is sexual immorality such a big deal to the Lord? And, and for those who aren't Christians, this can be a huge issue, of course. Why does God care so much about what I do with, with, my, with, with my body? Uh, what, what does it matter? Why does God care what I do with my genitals? What, why? Why is it such a big deal? Now, the big picture in this is that Idolatry and immorality are two sides of the same coin. Idolatry leads to immorality, immorality leads to idolatry. They're two sides of the same coin. And they create a compromise that plays directly into the hands of Satan. And that happens in the days of Israel, and it's happening now in Pergamum. And of course it can happen amongst us too. And so we need some explanation here we need to think a little bit about what sexual immorality is. Who decides what is immoral? Who defines what sexual immorality is? And because this is such a huge subject in our culture, it is something which we need to teach on regularly. And to be honest, I would much rather teach on pretty much anything than this subject. But it's one we cannot avoid. Both we can't avoid it here because it's in this letter of Jesus to the church in Pegram. So we can't skip it over, but also because of where we are culturally, our cultural moment demands that we teach into this subject, perhaps more than most of us would be comfortable with or would really want to. And and I think that the reality is that maybe even some of you have never heard a proper faithful Christian apologetic of what it is we believe on this subject, and that's certainly true for the vast majority of people outside our churches. They really have no idea what it is that Christians really believe in this issue of sexuality. And uh, there are things that I'm going to say, even in this session, which there needs to be some kind of caution about. There might be things which you find difficult. There might be things which are a bit triggering for you. So it's a difficult area. Whenever we speak on this, especially in mixed congregations with a range of ages and experiences and believers and unbelievers, we have to tread carefully. But we do need to talk about it. One place to begin is by thinking about the reality that Everyone has some kind of moral boundary. Everybody has some kind of moral limits. In his book, The Righteous Mind, psychologist Jonathan Haidt gives some examples of research that he's done trying to test where people's moral boundaries lie. And he gives the example of uh, testing uh, people in experiments he's doing with different scenarios, one of which is a scenario where a brother and sister have sex, a brother and sister commit incest. And uh, the question he poses to people with that scenario is, well, how do you respond? Is What's your moral response to that? And, and the vast majority of people are kind of morally repulsed, disgusted by the notion of a brother and sister having sex together. But the follow-up question that researchers then asked was, well, why? Why do you feel that way? And what's fascinating in this research is that actually very few people could articulate why they felt a sense of disgust about brother and sister having sex together. And that's a very telling experiment, a very telling illustration, because we Christians we need not only to know what our moral framework is, but we need to know why that is our moral framework. And so when Jesus speaks to this church in Pergamum and says, you're immoral. We need to have a sense of what that means and why it matters and how it applies to us. As a culture we have almost entirely lost our bearings on this. We just don't know where we stand in all this area of sexuality. A week or so ago I read uh, an amazing uh, article by somebody, I don't think is a a believer an academic, researching this area and uh, she said this. Once cloaked in coy innuendo, we've reached the stage where raunchy chat and explicit images can seem almost banal. Porn websites are reporting record numbers, while the messy realities of intimacy are increasingly shown in films and on TV. But if sex is everywhere, it's also nowhere. As birth rates plunge globally, we are, encouraging, we are engaging in the act less and less. The significance of this change shouldn't be underestimated as how we conceptualize sex and relationships is at the root of how we organize our societies. We are in the paradoxical situation where meaningful intimacy is at once an object of skepticism and also a cultural obsession. The more dubious we seemingly are about the possibility of transcendent romance, the more we want to dream of its existence. That's an amazing observation by somebody who I don't think has got any Christian conviction that we are obsessed by sex. The reality is that people are having less sex than they used to. We're completely confused by sex. We want romance and dream of its existence and yet are less and less confident about its reality. That's a good definition of the confused place in which our culture now stands. And for those of us who hold a traditional biblical ethic on these things, our position is just shocking. The position that I hold about sex, that there should be no sex outside the marriage of a man and woman, is a shocking position to hold in my culture. Actually, in the UK, I potentially risk being arrested for hate speech by making a statement like that, that I believe there should be no sex outside the marriage of a man and a woman. That's a deadly offensive thing to say in our culture. And so what I want to do now is to give a a summary of biblical teaching on this and um, to see that when we're talking about sex, we're not talking about something which is merely a biological function, but something which has profound meaning. And I'm going to give a kind of a 10,000-foot view, just quickly go through some some, some, uh, pointers to help us understand what our moral framework is, or should be, and why. Uh, and uh, I'm not going to have time to do this anything like justice. Uh, there are some notes which go into this much more thoroughly, I prepared, and uh, you've got a QR code you can scan, and that will give you access to the fuller notes. You might want to have a look at those later. But for this section, I'm just going to give you that 10,000-foot view. The way that I've often taught about this is to think about The purpose of sex in three different ways. Sex should be fruitful, sex should be faithful, and sex should be sacrificial. So firstly, sex should be fruitful. We often forget this, but sex is actually geared towards reproduction. Sex is about having babies. Uh, For a society to stay stable stable in its population, you need on average for every woman to have 2.1 babies. The .1 is needed because of infant mortality. Across much of the world, the fertility rate is significantly lower than 2.1 babies per woman. In the US now, it's 1.7. In uh, the UK, we're at about the same rate, but other places have much lower rates of fertility. In South Korea, the fertility rate is only 0.92 babies per woman. There are very significant issues for societies like South Korea. With an aging population and not nearly enough young people being born and all the potential consequences for that economically. How do you support a society? How do you support a population where you have more and more older people and fewer and fewer younger people? When it's the younger people who are the ones who are productive and work and earn the money in order to be able to care for the older people? It's a financial economic sum which societies across the West are struggling desperately to try and fix. We also see very conflicted attitudes towards children in our culture. I see that in my culture, both a kind of a idolism of kids, uh, wrapping them in cotton, cotton wooler, terror of them getting into any kind of danger or peril, or keeping them almost literally locked away to keep them safe and and also, on the other hand, a a kind of resentment towards children because of the amount of investment and time they take and actually increasingly also more and more people kind of resenting children because people are seen to be the problem. People saying I'm not going to have children because I don't want them to come into the world and do more damage to the planet. Uh, Harry and Meghan saying we won't have any more than two kids because we don't want to do any more damage to the planet and so there's this kind of fearfulness about children the biblical view of kids is very different biblical view is that yes children are a responsibility but responsibility is something which christians should pursue and children are a blessing genesis 1:28, god blessed them and god said to them be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth very first blessing that god pronounced on the human race was a blessing which Led to procreation. Psalm 127, verse 3: Sons are a heritage from the Lord, children a reward from Him. One of the beautiful things we can see from these biblical promises is that no matter what your personal family background, there is a sense in which you are the result of blessing. It might be that your biological parents didn't want you, it might be they even told you they didn't want you. It might have been said, They they might have said, You were an accident. You should never have come along. And many people have been so damaged by family situations like that. But, But what the Word of God tells us is that every child is born as a result of blessing. That's something for us to lay hold of and receive. God gave us sex for this purpose the blessing of having children. Now, as I say that, I always want to kind of pause and just draw attention to those who would love to have children but are unable to because of fertility issues and just want to acknowledge that and acknowledge the painfulness of that because that is one of the most painful things that a couple can experience. If you're desperate for kids and you can't have them because of fertility issues I know that is just brutally painful and so I want to kind of acknowledge that and lodge that there and leave that there so uh, you are acknowledged if that's you wouldn't want to skim over that or skip that at all. But to state what should be obvious, that sex is meant to result in babies can seem shocking. But that's what sex actually is for. It's why flowers produce pollen and frogs produce spawn and why dogs have puppies and why people have sex. It's to produce offspring. But we no longer think of this as the primary purpose of sex the biblical pattern is that children should be born to those who are married get married have sex have babies that's a biblical pattern and there are all kinds of pragmatic reasons for that pattern and again just to acknowledge those who may be in different life circumstances I know that There are many who are single parents and I don't know any single parent who actually chooses to be a single parent. Raising kids is hard enough with two of you. It's brutal with only one of you and so many single parents who do an outstanding job of raising their kids and just want to acknowledge that as well. But nonetheless, the the biblical pattern is for mum and dad. Get married, have sex, have kids. And the pragmatic reasons because kids tend to flourish better where there's a mum and a dad around but more than those pragmatic reasons, there are spiritual reasons for this. That marriage is a covenant commitment which is blessed. A covenant Commitment which is blessed. And so we need to see how this all holds together. Sex is meant to be fruitful. That's what sex is for. It's for reproduction. It's for procreation. Children are the fruit of sex. Sex is reserved for marriage. Why? Because sex is meant to be fruitful. Because children are meant to be raised within the covenant of marriage. It's the first purpose of sex. Sex should be fruitful. Second purpose of sex is that sex should be faithful. In my nation, most adults now are unmarried, I'm not sure what the stats are for the US but I think it's similar, and that is unprecedented in human history, human experience, always in the historical past, the majority of adults have been married. We are now at this very different stage in our human history where the majority of adults in my society are unmarried, and there are all kinds of reasons for that. But let's just think about some of them. One one reason for a decline in marriage is that we no longer have to commit in order to get access to sex. In previous generations, women were the gatekeepers to sex and they demanded a high price to get access because there was a high risk without effective contraception, sex because sex is meant to be fruitful has a high likelihood of being fruitful and producing babies that means there 's a high cost for the woman involved. Most men want to have sex and to get access, they had to be willing to pay a high price of commitment, which often meant marriage or at least the promise of marriage and the likelihood of all the security that are then brought in terms of Uh, social status and financial provision and all the rest and that has been swept aside it was swept aside by the introduction of the pill in the 1960s the pill effectively made sex cheap that women no longer had to pay the price of pregnancy and so they could afford to make sex available in a way which it previously wasn't and so the kind of price of sex has decreased it's become cheap when it used to be expensive and we see that literally in terms of the impact of porn which is just ubiquitous just absolutely everywhere that reduces sex to what is free and then of course we also see how so many people struggle with an options paralysis with all the dating apps where you can keep swiping and picking and choosing and actually never choosing because there's just always somebody else to potentially pick and all these things undermine faithfulness in sex now that is very different from the biblical picture of covenant faithfulness the biblical picture we're given is that sex is meant to take place within the marriage covenant and that sexual faithfulness within that is key and this faithfulness sexual faithfulness in marriage is a lived example, it's a it's meant to be a laying hold of the prophetic kingdom picture. The Genesis to Revelation story is a story of marriage. God takes Adam and Eve, he joins them together, he blesses them, tells them to be fruitful, they're called to be fruitful and faithful together. The story ends Revelation, with the people of God partaking in the wedding supper of the Lamb, the bride of Christ married to our bridegroom the whole story the arc of the narrative is a story of marriage and for those of us who are married those of us who know the Lord, our marriages are meant to be a prophetic laying hold of and outworking of that bigger story. This means that our marriages are actually much more significant than just my personal romantic feelings of attachment to the person that I'm married to. There's a bigger picture going on. When we marry people in our churches, that is an opportunity to proclaim a prophetic picture of what Christ is doing with his church, what Christ is about. The whole story is about a wedding, about marriage, about Christ uniting himself to his people and that's what human marriage is meant to reflect, represent and point to. And That means faithfulness. Christ is faithful to his church and we're to be faithful in our marriages. So to those of you who are married, how on earth do you stay faithful? It is really hard to stay faithful. The reality is that most of us can expect to live for a long time. Most of us can expect to live until our 80s or 90s. And if you get married in your 20s or your 30s, that means you have decades of marriage. How can you stay faithful for 50 or 60 years? How can you do it? Well, it's got to be more than just, just grinding it out. It's not just kind of every day getting up and turning over and seeing, oh, ah, yeah, still her in the bed, let's keep going for another day, it's got to be more than that, (laughs) looking for more than that. To be faithful in our marriages, actually what we're looking for again is what we look for in our relationship with God. Our marriages are to be a reflection, a representation and a pointing to our relationship with God. And with God we live in this place of union, Christ marries his people. When we come to faith in Jesus, there's that moment where we are joined with Christ, we're united with him, symbolised at our baptism, united with Christ. It's a once-for-all thing, it's been done, achieved, sealed. But there's also a communion, there needs to be an ongoing and a growing experience and sense of knowing and loving God, a day-by-day enduring of him, there needs to be a cultivation of the relationship. And in our marriages, it's the same. There's that moment of union, your wedding day. Say the vows, leave, have sex, that moment of union. But there then needs to be an ongoing communion, a cultivating of relationship, which enables faithfulness to flourish. Churches of Smyrna and Philadelphia are commended for their faithfulness. They didn't commit immorality. They didn't commit idolatry. And for us, sex is meant to be a display and outworking of faithfulness. And so it needs to be kept within the bounds of marriage because that's the only place where faithfulness can really be displayed. The third purpose of sex is that sex should be sacrificial. Ephesians 5.25, we're going to be looking at this in the last of these sessions. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What the Apostle Paul describes in that passage is Christ setting a pattern for us, the relationship between Christ and his church setting a pattern for human marriage, that Christ embraces his people. and Paul says this is a mystery, how can it be that the Lord on high embraces sinful humans like us and joins us to himself, and how can it be that a man and woman can be united and become one flesh? It's a mystery, Paul describes it as. There are many components to forming a marriage. There's getting to know one another, dating, courtship, engagement, the wedding itself. And then sex is what seals the deal, consummation. Still, if you don't consummate a marriage, it's not a valid marriage. The marriage can be annulled. It's not a real marriage if it hasn't been consummated, if there hasn't been sex after the marriage. Now, biblically, there's something sacred about this, and... Those words sacred and sacrifice are the same thing, they hang together. Sex is meant to be sacred, sex is meant to be sacrificial. It's about seeking someone else, serving someone else, body and soul. It's about putting the other person's happiness ahead of our own. Not pursuing our own rights first, but pursuing the good of the other first. And Jesus teaches us to sacrifice And the question that I always ask couples when they come to me and say, we want to get married, the thing I always ask them is, are you you determined to serve this other person sacrificially for the rest of your life? Because that's what Christian marriage is about. A determination to serve completely, sacrificially, this other person for as long as God gives you breath. It's only in marriage that sex can find its true meaning because it's only in marriage that that kind of sacrifice is embraced. Whether you're married or unmarried, the reality is that to resist immorality, to resist worldliness is going to take sacrifice. All of us actually are called to a life of sacrifice. To be married and stay faithful requires sacrifice. To be unmarried and stay faithful requires sacrifice. There's so much more that could be said about this, but for me here there is this compelling vision of what sex is meant to be and what it can be. Something which is fruitful and faithful and sacrificial. Something which actually is beautiful, pure, strengthening and good. Something which is not selfish but is life-giving. There's a a compelling vision the Bible gives us about this, about sex, about marriage, which uh, is so much more precious, so much more compelling, so much more beautiful than the picture the world paints for us, which in reality is shabby, tawdry, ugly, polluted, destroying. Reality is, though, that we are constantly being trained, discipled, spiritual word, catechized by the world. I know... In the UK, every time you turn on the TV, every TV drama you watch or reality show or whatever it might be, we're constantly being catechized in immorality. Remember worldliness is whatever makes righteousness look strange and sin look normal. And every time I turn on the TV, righteousness looks strange and sin looks normal. And so, Christian, don't be blind to worldliness. Don't compromise. Don't bow down at Satan's throne. And it might be that there's actually a need for repentance, even amongst us. There's a need for repentance because we have compromised. But if we repent, there's grace and forgiveness for us. And then Jesus describes the rewards for those who are faithful before him. And we have this, again, this, this picture language we find in Revelation. He says that those who are victorious will receive manna. Manna was the divine, miraculous bread which the Lord provided to feed the Israelites as they wandered in the wilderness those 40 years. And Jesus taught us, give us this day our daily bread. What the Lord is promising us there is that he can supply for us. If we resist worldliness, if we stay faithful, if we don't compromise with immorality and idolatry, the Lord can sustain us. He can provide for us. He can give us what we most need, feed on him and the bread he provides. Jesus also says that he will give us a white stone. That's probably a tessera. A tessera was a a token which was used for different uh, kind of functions in the Roman world it could be given out as a ticket to a banquet if you got an invite to a feast you'd be given a tessera, uh, a stone which was your uh, ticket to get into the banquet or uh, at, the, at the games, the gladiatorial games if a gladiator had done well and the emperor decided to free that gladiator from his slavery of fighting in the arena the emperor could give a tessera to a gladiator and that was his son that he was now free and uh, in trials The jurors would throw white stones into an urn to show that they thought the person on trial was innocent. And so we have all this kind of imagery which is probably uh, at play here in what Jesus is saying that he's going to give you a white stone, it's going to be a sign of your welcome, of your invitation. Yes, you have access to the feast of God and you're going to be given a white stone which means that yes, you are free. You've been set free from your slavery, and you're going to be given a white stone, which means yes, you are declared to be innocent, blameless in the sight of God. You're going to be given a new name, it means there's an identity you have as a Christian, there's a belonging that we have as Christians, there's a status that we have as Christians. Now, there should be some white stones around. I was given a white stone once, probably about 10 years ago, I heard somebody teaching on this passage, uh, Rory Dyer, some of you will know Rory, and he was teaching this passage and he had a load of white stones for those of us who were there. And I've kept that white stone ever since, I have it uh, next to my desk in our church office and it's a helpful reminder to me, a tangible reminder of what Christ has promised, that Christ has said I am welcome, Christ has said I am free, Christ has said I am innocent. And what I'd like you to do, I'd invite you to do is to take hold of one of those white stones and for you to keep that white stone as a, as a reminder, as a tangible reminder to you. And there might be in those moments when you are feeling tempted, when wilderness, when immorality, when idolatry is, is calling heart, you take hold of that white stone and you remind yourself of the white stone that you will receive from Christ. To be a faithful witness That is what we are called. Let's not be like those at Pergamum who are being led astray by the sin of Balaam. Let's not compromise with immorality and idolatry. Let's be those who are faithful witnesses, who know the reward that we are going to receive, who know that Jesus feeds us with bread from heaven and he's given us a new name and a stone which speaks of our freedom, our innocence and our belonging. Yes, we have something so much better to know, celebrate and enjoy than what the world can offer us. Let us not compromise. Let us not bow at Satan's throne. Let's not fall in line with the power of the beast. But let's honour, worship, adore Jesus, the true king, the one who has real authority and has rescued us from sin and brought us into life. Hallelujah.